0: This episode is brought to you by Ghosts of Tomorrow, by Michael R. Fletcher. The children are the future, and someone is turning them into highly trained killing machines. From the author of the critically acclaimed Manifest Delusion series, comes a bleak and disturbing glimpse of the near future. A violent and heart-pounding cyberpunk thriller that delves deep into the human psyche. Read the novel fantasy book review calls gritty, brutal, and amazingly well-written. Ghosts of Tomorrow by Michael R Fletcher, available now on Kindle ebook or paperback or read for free with Kindle Unlimited.
1: Let me talk to the storytellers for a second. You know who you are. Crafting a story that captures the imaginations and the hearts of your audience is no small task. Stacks of notes, timelines, maps, character profiles. The architecture of storytelling can be a daunting prospect. Introducing Arcavos The story development tool for today's storytellers. With Archivos, storytellers don't just document the characters, places, and events of their stories. They define the relationships between those story elements, and then visualize those connections through unique story mapping interfaces like the living map, the timeline, and the story web. By giving storytellers the ability to see and interact with that network of story elements, Archivos helps ensure story comprehension and continuity, while providing a dramatic and engaging way for fans to explore the story worlds they love. Learn more about Archivos at www.archivos.digital. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-O-S dot digital. Archivos, your stories illuminated.
0: Hi, I'm Cam the host of the Nerdbook Review Podcast. My friends and I are lifelong fantasy fans who bring you a weekly podcast with insightful, spoiler-free reviews of books from the biggest names in the business, like Brandon Sanderson and Mark Lawrence, as well as indie authors like M.L. Spencer and M.D. Presley, with the occasional sci-fi classic thrown in for good measure. If Mark Lawrence's Spiffbo competition is your cup of tea, we have reviews and author interviews with over a dozen of the contestants. You can listen to episodes new and old on iTunes or the platform of your choice and you can find us on social media by searching for The Nerdbook Review. At The Nerdbook Review, we strive to widen your fantasy horizons. Tell your story with NeoStock, cinematic stock photography for genre writers. Grimdark, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more. Get your free digital sample pack at neo-stock.com. That's neo-stock.com. Tell your story with Neostock.
2: This episode is sponsored by Coven Queen by Jeremy Goble. In the cursed country of Akorilan, monarchs are bred to die, and Julara's turn draws near. Fueled by wine and rage, she lives in the shadows of the malignant entity's death pact. While burdened with the expectation of an early death, she's also tested by a starving populace and political vultures on her borders. Having little control over her fate, Julara must prepare to face the cruel Covenant. Can the discovery of a forgotten power allow her to break the bonds of dark magic that have tormented her family for centuries? Coven Queen by Jeremy Goble. From the author of the Akalian tales comes a standalone dark fantasy inspired by Melisandre from Game of Thrones. Coven Queen is an aggressive and welcome return to the mystifying traits of old world witchcraft. Available now on Amazon, on Kindle ebook, or paperback, or read for free with Kindle Unlimited. Coven Queen by Jeremy Gogol. Conjure your copy today.
0: Hey there, it's Rob Matheny. Hi, this is Phil Overby. And we are more than excited to, at long last, have author Mark Lawrence here on the podcast by of the Demand, the author of The Broken Empire series, The Red Queen's War, and The Book of the Ancestor. is here on the show, and we've got a special two-part interview for you. And in celebration, we've partnered up with Ace Publishing, and we're going to give away one copy of Red Sister on paperback, available now, and we're going to hook up one listener uh, from anywhere in the world, so you can be in Antarctica, Madagascar, <laughs> northern Russia, doesn't matter, we will hook you up. What you have to do is very simple. Just email us, at grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. That's grimdarkfiction at gmail.com. In the subject line, write March Lawrence. And in the March March Lawrence. See what we did there? March, Mark? Anyway. And then in the body of the email, just write your name and address. And then the first person to email us once this episode drops will pick up a copy of Red Sister Book One of the Book of the Ancestor series on paperback. All you have to do is email us and you could win a copy. If you don't win, we're going to give away one more copy on part two of our interview, which should be coming out in just about a week or two. So just subscribe to the Grim Tidings podcast on iTunes. That way you'll know when a new episode drops and you too could win a copy of Red Sister. But anyway, thanks to Mark, thanks to Ace Publishing, and best of luck to all who enter. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
0: This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David nath Hi,
2: this is Melanie Matters. Hi, this
0: is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show.
3: Thank you for inviting me I'm looking forward Hi, this is Mark Lawrence, author of Red Sister, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast.
0: It's the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Today's guest is unmistakably one of the most prominent voices in the Grimdark subgenre and fantasy fiction as a whole. He broke onto the scene in 2011 with his Grimdark epic fantasy debut, Prince of Thorns, book one of the Broken Empire trilogy. A book that went on to receive both reader and critical acclaim, not only became the best-selling book of the year, but has since gone on to sell more than half a million copies worldwide. Each following volume in the trilogy, King of Thorns and Emperor of Thorns continued to blow readers away, culminating in a Gamel Legend Award in 2014 and an R-Fantasy Stabby Award for Best Novel. His follow-up series, The Red Queen's War, continued to cement our guests' impact on the fantasy genre as a whole. The Prince of Fools, The Liar's Key, and The Wheel of Oshime presented readers with a new character arc set in the same story universe, garnering continued praise from readers and critics alike. His latest series presents a new story universe and a new set of characters. Red Sister dropped this past April, kicking off the first installment in the Book of the Ancestor series, with the follow-up Grey Sister due out in April of this year. To date, his books have sold over 1 million copies and have been published in 20 languages. He's also a proponent for self-published authors and bloggers, helping coordinate the annual self-published fantasy blog-off, or spin helping to connect readers with the very best in self-published fantasy fiction. He's a proud husband and father of four. Between writing and caring for his disabled daughter, he spends his time playing computer games, brewing beer, and avoiding DIY. Skyping in from Bristol, UK, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes international best-selling author Mark Lawrence to the show. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Papa Mark, that's what we've referred to you before on the show. We probably referenced you probably 50 to 100 times on the show. There's no doubt you are. The loudest voice in Grimdark, I'd say at this point. Uh, So no doubt we're honored to have you on the show today. Man, you've got a lot going on. It took me quite a while to put your introduction together. Mark, you've graciously taken the time uh, out of your day. And we hope not only to introduce you to new readers, but answer some of the questions your fans and listeners have wanted to know about. You're such a prominent voice online, and you've blogged extensively over the years and done multiple print and blog interviews, and I'm sure whatever ground that we cover today, folks can be sure to drop by your blog, or they can visit your official fan site, thatthornguy.com, for tons more. And, of course, listeners can be sure to check out the show notes for these episodes for copious links about everything we're going to talk about today. First and foremost, Mark, thank you for gracing us on the Grim Tidings podcast. It's your kind of podcast debut. That's very cool of you. But I wanted to ask you kind of what made you decide to give podcasting a try
3: well i always claim when people invite me on podcasts that i i have a phone phobia and it's it's true i'm not a phone guy i um have never phoned up a friend for a chat i'll phone up a friend if i need to talk to them about something but I, i just i like to see people and it just sort of built up and built up that i would just turn down all these these podcasts um uh requests and um then last november uh the, the house got burgled um and um the the burglar stole a, a bunch of very expensive um equipment that my disabled daughter needs and it had no resale value so it was going to be dumped in a bin somewhere and the only way to to get the stuff back was publicity so you know i tweeted about it and it went viral and then there were lots of radio stations and i um, i did lots of interviews for them and i lots of reporters calling me up and then i had to go on two tv channels and we got the stuff back and it it worked and it you know, it all turned out well, but it just uh, brought it home to me that, you know, I, I can bite the bullet and I can do these things. And I was just maybe being a bit of a big baby and um, <laughs> I, I should not uh,
0: not keep turning these invitations down. Well, it's a very gracious of you uh, to stop by. And I'm glad to hear that uh, there was a, a positive uh, resolution to that story uh, with your daughter. Unfortunate circumstances with uh, getting the equipment uh, burglarized. But I'm glad that uh, there was a, a good conclusion to that story, at least.
3: Yeah, it's um It was nice to have it back. It would have taken a lot of money, and also there were things coded onto it that that couldn't really be replaced in a hurry. So,
0: Good stuff. Yeah, the uh, Grimdark community and the fantasy community as a whole, yeah, that thing went viral, and I was glad to see everybody kind of uh, getting around and rallying behind you and uh, uh, Kaylin, so uh, that's good stuff. I think during our conversation today, we're going to cover definitely some high points. We're going to talk about the legacy of the Broken Empire series, along with the Red Queen's War. We're going to talk about your new series. The book of the ancestor, which uh, includes Red Sister and the forthcoming Grey Sister. We're going to talk a little bit about the self-published fantasy blog off. And we're going to talk some writer advice along with some uh, Patreon questions as well. So, uh, plenty to cover, uh, today. But, uh, I think first and foremost, we, th- we just like to kind of get to know Mark a little bit. Kind of, I think you're kind of a, a nebulous enigma as far as authors go, as far as maybe, uh, what's maybe, a an average Day like in the life of Mark Lawrence. Could you make it maybe walk us through a, a breakfast to a dinner time and when and maybe what you do on an average day and your writing and and what goes on in Casa de Lawrence? Uh,
3: well, I could be a, a great disappointment here because my average day is, is very average and I I think most writers live very dull lives to be honest, uh, which always disappoints the um the, the readers. You know they expect us to be uh riding dragons for real to see what it feels like so we've got the authentic uh, version to put on the page or something um i get my daughter off to school in the morning which is quite a palaver involves a lot of hoisting and rolling and medicine making and whatnot uh, and when she's dispatched i move into the conservatory because we now have a um, a new puppy um we were thinking of getting a dog in the summer and had we had a dog we wouldn't have got burgled. so We just took that step uh, and we've now got Ruby, which um, being a puppy, she likes to devour everything (laughs) and that means she needs an eye kept on her. So uh, I used to come up into my office and work, but now I work in the conservatory and make sure that Ruby doesn't eat uh, the furniture too much or the cats. And I just sit there and I I mess about on social media and and I write my um, stories. Uh, I I mean, talking to other authors, you, you get a, impression of a huge variety of approaches and some people they need to be closeted in complete silence in an ivory tower and and have music and focus and i I tend to mix my writing up with everything else i need to do and i will write a paragraph or a line something else come back to it it sounds chaotic um but that's just how i do it and that's the the results are in the book so if if you think it's disjointed it's because i i am moving between many things
0: and do you keep, like, an average word count or anything like that on daily?
3: Nope, not at all. Um, some days, if I don't feel like writing,
0: then I don't write. Um,
3: and uh, some days I write an awful lot. Uh, there's no sort of target by any means. You know. uh, there's plenty of days when things will come up and I write zero words. You know, We have to take Kellyn to a hospital appointment or um, I have to do interviews or, or whatever. But things will come up and, and I'll write nothing and I won't feel guilty about it at all. Um, And then there'll be other days when, you know, I might write 8,000 words. And if I wrote 8,000 words every day, I could, you know, write about five George Martin-sized books in a year. So (laughs) uh, that's just the way it goes.
0: Your output's pretty impressive. You've got about one novel per year at this point, so not too shabby. Well,
3: one a year being published, basically, Um, I actually write faster than that. So that's why, like, the Book of the Ancestor was all finished in in mid-2016. So I I write other stuff as well in, in the interim But actually, I don't think I write a a vast number of words. It's more the case that, again, and this varies hugely from author to author, that um, a lot of very fine authors will spend an enormous time planning and then refining that. I've spoken to Abercrombie and, and Peter V. Brett. Uh, and both of those guys will, before they actually write a page of prose, they'll basically have about a half to a third of a page of notes saying what's going on that page so that their their skeleton of their book is filled in and filled in and filled in to an enormous degree. Um, and you'll get other guys like um, Mike Cole, who will literally delete a 100 pages and rewrite it. And he'll do that sometimes. He said he's, he's drafted some books, essentially rewritten them six, seven, eight times. I can't do any of that stuff. I just write it, look it over, and leave it. So the fact that I only write once enables me to produce a reasonable number of books in, a, in a, any given period. But I haven't written that many words. It's just I've only written the words once.
0: Yeah, I was kind of blown away when I initially read about your your writing approach. Because not only do you mostly pants it, but what you write is extremely profound and has nuance And subtext and, and it just, it's kind of brilliance that just kind of naturally flows from you. And, uh, I think the legacy of Jorg and the Broken Empire speaks for it. I mean, 500,000 copies. Of uh, The Prince of Thorns was sold, multiple printings, a uh, Gamel Legend Award for Emperor, an R Fantasy Stabby Award along with multiple Goodreads, best of nominations, no doubt the Broken Empire is a worldwide international fantasy phenomenon. Um so maybe we could talk start off talking a little bit about the Prince of Thorns and maybe how that book found a publisher and in your initial path to publication.
3: Sure. Prince of Thorns I wrote over a, a reasonably extended period because okay, I never had any ambition to be an, an author. I did a lot of writing under different circumstances, not fiction per se, but um, as, as a younger man. So um, I played D and D when I was a kid. I was a GM. I, I would write um, scenarios, and that's that's creative, you know. You're describing and you're writing and you're inventing. And later, I ran a, a play or helped run a, a play by mail game. This was pre-internet, so a thousand players in a shared world, and they would mail in their turns, and I would essentially write them short stories back to say how they their adventure for their character progressed and you know that's got dialogue and, and description it's not writing a book but it, it's writing I, I learned to write stories coherent stories uh, on internet groups and uh, i basically wrote prince of thorns on an, an internet group so that took several years because i i would just write a bit on the weekend and then come back to it a couple of weeks and later and write a little bit more and uh, when i'd finished it i just put it in a electronic drawer and, and forgot about it for maybe three years uh, there was a lady on the group who, who kept um say oh you must do something with this you must do something with this and one of the reasons I wasn't ever interested in doing anything was because I felt that a, a reading the stories from that from, <laughs> I was reading uh, that the people out there were, were much better than me. And also, I had the impression that it was you had to do a lot of networking. You had to know the right people that, that, that it would be. You know, I'd heard about Aragon and, and you know, oh, his parents were publishers. And I just got that impression from, from being in these groups. People were always talking about how elevator pitches and networking and going to the right conferences and meeting the right people. And I just didn't have the time or interest for that. So yeah, I, I let it lie. Uh, but this, this woman kept on at me and she, she um you know, she had a uh, quite sad personal circumstances and wasn't rich, but she, and she lived in America and she sent me this enormous book of um, uh, where to send your book to you know, markets for, for writers, uh, which, you know, cost an arm and leg to send overseas. And I just felt guilty. So, so one day I sat down and I, um, I found a list on a, a forum of, of agents, literary agents for fantasy. I worked my way down the list and uh, I sent uh, a query to one a week, I think it was. And I got to four and I stopped um, and again, forgot about it. Uh, and, and the fourth one came back to me first uh, a couple of months later and "Oh, I really like this. Um, I'll sign you up, but, but don't expect anything special because the or at least not in a hurry because uh, the, the uh, publishing world moves at a glacial pace Uh, and then literally a month after that he had a bidding war where all of the the major publishers in the UK certainly had um, put in a bid for the books and um, (laughs) had a free book deal uh, and two more books to write and this isn't usual or normal and I think I was right not to expect it it was just um, sort of lightning struck uh, and I was very lucky Uh, and then a couple of months after that Two of the other four agents wrote back and rejected me. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, there it goes.
0: Someone didn't get the memo.
3: Actually, only one of them wrote back and rejected me. and The other two never wrote back. Um, <clears throat> though I have spoken to that to one of those guys um, like years later, um, and he has no memory of, of my stuff arriving or ever laying his eyes on it. <clears throat> so the lesson there is that you don't need to network, but it is a lottery. You know, you need to write a decent book to stand a chance, or a good book to stand a chance. But just writing a good book isn't enough. You also need the planets to align and, and for some, the right person to see it at the right time. Mm-hmm. Get on the Grim Tidings podcast, et etc. et kind of yeah, help your eyes. Yeah, that, that always helped. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say that was crucial. Yes, absolutely.
4: One thing I want to ask uh, about the Broken Empire trilogy is that you, you mentioned you start writing and you don't really plan anything. There's an aspect of the story that is that is a big spoiler, and uh, I was curious if you knew that big spoiler element going into the story, or did
3: you? I'm going to say no because I didn't didn't know anything going into the story. I didn't. I, I thought I was writing a short story to start with. There was twists concerning the setting, and I hadn't had no idea that those twists existed until I wrote them. People sometimes object to the idea that I don't plan and I don't, and they object to it by saying. There's no way you could have written this unless you knew that. And my answer to that is that when you're reading a book, so so you're just a reader and you've got halfway through and the guy's setting out from the city of whatever, aiming for so-and-so city uh, to meet a man, to negotiate the sale of a ruby or something. So you have a pretty firm belief that that guy is going to get there and end up speaking to the other guy about a ruby. It might not happen. You're not planning the book. You're not the writer. And yet you have opinions about what will happen in the future and they may turn out to be wrong. You know, the, the guy may, his horse may fall into a wormhole two yards outside the city. And that's the, the story veers off in a completely different direction. So sure, when I'm writing, I have those sort of feelings that the reader also has about where it's heading. And, and uh, you know, if somebody says, hey, let's all ride to so and so, there's a pretty good chance that's what's going to happen. But it's it's not planning in as much as I didn't sit down and say these things will happen and these are the milestones I'm aiming for and it will end like this. I guess like
4: being a dungeon master plays into that because oftentimes when you're running a campaign, you don't know what the characters are going to do or you may set up something to
3: happen. That's one of the joys of playing D and D that the, um, that the players will surprise you and in this context the characters are the players so yeah i, I wrote um one of the campaigns i wrote for my friends when i was in, in school started off with a, a, a town and um, some taverns and whatnot and you were supposed to gather information and and they played for it and that happened and, and then years later i ran it for my kids and they were a bit young and they decided they were going to kill everyone in town and the whole thing went down in a completely different direction uh, so that you know you you can't plan you just have a, a for, for D&D, you, you'll, you'll have a framework and you just, the excitement is how will the, the people interact with these situations when I'm writing, I just keep asking what if questions, what if you know, Jorg was attacked by three bears let's do it, see what happens that doesn't happen, <laughs> but it, it's that sort of thing what if the guy next to him actually turns out
0: to be you know a traitor Does that writing style continue with all your books since
3: then? Uh, it continued up to The, the Wheel of Osheim The, the Liar's Key I was about halfway through that and it just started to get away from me and I was stuck. It was one of my longest books and the reason is it was because I was just, I didn't know where it was going and, and previously all the books had just got where they were going by themselves uh, and it, this one was just sort of getting away from me and, and I sort of managed to rein it in and, and came to hopefully a, a satisfying conclusion but then for the wheel of ossheim i said well i don't really want that to happen again especially not at the last book and if i let it get away from me then maybe i'll start to butt up against deadlines closer than i want to and i never come anywhere near deadlines so mm. i don't like to write under, under pressure uh, so for the wheel of ossheim i said it's going to end here and it's just some vague waffle about how things will come together and so there was a yeah, so that I was sort of planning the end there just so I knew where I was heading and that it would end in some sensible manner that I, I didn't have to invent off the cuff. And for Red Sister, because the setting is quite complicated, I didn't plan any of the action or adventure or the characters, but I did think about the world building in advance. So I knew what the what the setting was
0: going to be. Yeah, sometimes publishers kind of require maybe an outline or what have you when you know publishing a a new trilogy deal. I presume with you there's maybe less of a hands-on approach.
3: Well, when you get a, a like a three book deal and and you've only so for my first trilogy I got a three book deal and I'd written one book for my second trilogy I got a three book deal and I'd written fifteen thousand words of the first book and more and more these days publishing is uh, ruled over by the uh, the accountants and so there's all sorts of bean counting and risk management strategies. And in order to satisfy those people, you have to have a page on which is written a bunch of stuff about what will happen in books two and three. And I just write any old nonsense down there and then never look at it again. Uh, And, I've come back to look at it for the uh, Broken Empire, and I think about two of the 15 things I said would happen when <laughs> King of Thorns happened, so... You just write shit, 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 like a hundred times? <laughs> well, it's an exercise in risk management, but it's people are just ticking the boxes so that um, if things go tits up, there's a, uh, someone to blame, and uh, well, at least they've covered their asses that they're not going to... They can't be blamed under the formal thing because they say, "Well, well, we got him to sketch this out, and the risk was minimised in this manner." And yeah, I, and it's not the editors doing it. I don't think it's the it's just the uh, the publishing structure and the money men that want them to do it. So,
4: well, I want to talk about Jorg a little bit because oftentimes on the internet, when you're talking about characters, he comes up a lot as a character that people either really, really hate or really, really love. And I think he's one of the more controversial figures in fantasy fiction. Can you give us any idea of why you think the opinions are so divergent about him as a character?
3: Well, I guess the main reason would be because that's what I wanted to do. Um, (laughs) It's no secret that uh, Jorg is inspired by um, a character called Alex from A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. I think it's written in 69, maybe and yeah he was always intended to be a question if you like he's asking a question of the uh, of the reader and i expected to get different answers because if you uh, asked a question that only had one obvious answer then that would be a boring question um so the books are really about jorg they're not about the plots the plots there but it's there to exercise him to show different aspects of him to put him under pressure so that we see more about who he is and where he's going and in a sense that that makes it a slightly and this is trumpet blowing it doesn't make it better but it makes it a slightly more literary book than a lot of fantasy which is very concerned with with the plot um it's it's a character driven thing and and so because jorg is is the show he's got to have you know different reactions to him he's got to ask questions and he's got to change your opinion potentially over the course. You know, some people might like him from fairly early on. Some people might come to appreciate or, or sympathize with him later on in the books. And some people never will. In a sense, he's like these objects that you, if you're part of the people's reactions to him are, are dependent upon the angle they approach him from where they're coming from, what what's going on in their lives. So it's like these objects that you illuminate from, from different sides and they cast radically different shadows the reader is illuminating it, and they're casting a, a different shadow depending on what what angle they they come at him from.
4: He's like a he's like a Rorschach
3: test of characters. Whatever yeah. you
4: see is what you get, kind of thing. There's certainly an element of
3: that, but but hopefully also a uh, he's like the mask that, that Rorschach wears. It's a changing one as well, so that, that there's a potential for you to change your opinion on him, but not a not a requirement.
0: What sort of character archetype would you say Jorg is? Would you say he's an anti-hero or a villain? Oh, I don't know about that. I think those are not particularly useful,
3: um, certainly for character driven work, that, that they're not particularly useful uh, concepts. He, he's a person, a fairly radical and extreme one, but um, yeah, he's, he's just a good person. You could have somebody of exactly the same character in a literary fiction book where he's examined in ways that don't involve him sticking a, a, a dagger through somebody's eye every time he gets crossed. It, 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 it's just that the violence is because we're in fantasy. Um, you have the freedom to, to use that and why not? It's fun. You know, it's so the books are supposed to be fun and, and we all like sword fights and, and, and things blowing up. So yeah, but just because you have people wielding swords and things blow up, doesn't detract from the worth of what you're saying about the character.
4: How would you compare, the way you handled Jorg as a character versus uh, uh, Jalen in the Red Queens War series.
3: Well, I clearly intended them to be very different. I guess like one of my fears was that I would just end up rewriting Jorg or you know, slightly pale a slightly paler version of him, or just you know dress him up in some different way, and I'd end up writing the same book over and over again. And one of the, the main reasons for ending Jorg's story with. With three books was just that because it was about the character and the the character changes and faces different challenges over the course of the books, there's a natural end there that you can't just keep on bringing out sort of new memories and traumas from your past that you have to somehow resolve. It just would get silly. So I wanted to go somewhere very different with with Jalen and yeah, hopefully he's a he's a completely different character, but one who also develops and can change his a, your opinion of him as, as the books go go forwards.
0: Yeah, no doubt the Red Queen's War is a strong sophomore effort for a fantasy series uh, that any author I think can expect to write. It received uh, reader praise and various accolades, including a Gamel Award. Uh, you also won a award for Novel of the Year in our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for Novel of the Year for The Liar's Key and The Wheel of Oshime. So two years in a row you've been a fan favorite of the Facebook group. So uh, really, what's a higher accolade than that? Really, who needs? Oh, a can't think of any. Right, Gamel Stabby. <laughs> Whatever. The, okay. the GDAF award. <laughs> it's up there with the Nobel Prize for Literature. with, let's be honest. Our good friends at Grimdark Magazine uh, have loved the series as well. Can you tell us about how you got your deal for the Red Queen's War as a follow-up trilogy following the Broken Empire?
3: I actually wrote uh, another book in, in between, um, which is on Wattpad called Gun Law. Gun Law is a completely um, radical departure from anything that, that you would see in the, um, the Broken Empire but my agent convinced me that what publishers and readers want is more of the same. And I was was far from convinced, but prepared to move in that direction. So I set it in the same universe, same locale, and at the very similar time so that the, the time overlaps. You know, I wrote the first 15,000 words, so maybe I don't know, the first two or three chapters, three or four chapters, and sent it in and they said,
0: yeah, let's, uh,
3: let's go with this uh,
0: and sign the book deal on it. Was it the publisher's request to uh, go back to the Broken Empire universe, or did you just feel like you had more stories to tell from that universe?
3: No, it wasn't wasn't the publisher's request. It was my agent's suggestion, if I wanted to uh, to build on the success and and um, carry readers with me, that I shouldn't make such a radical change as I did with Gunlaw. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of wisdom to that. People like to um, typecast authors and publishers and, if, and the authors, everyone's in on that that act together, that authors are far more flexible, generally speaking, I, I imagine, I, I certainly am, than they're given credit for. But if you go and write a terribly grim and dark uh, book full of blood and violence, one minute, and then the next, maybe you write a flowery romance, the readers who move on are going to feel betrayed. They like to look at the name of the author and get a a general feeling of what they're going to get from that person and so it is wise to give them that to a degree and what I've done is with each trilogy I've written I've sort of moved around uh, not because I want to get away from the first one just because I get bored and I, I like to write new things and I like to have new challenges so I, I certainly don't want to keep on writing the same thing over and over again but I have recognized that you need to do it in modest steps. So there's um, a very different character to not very different. There's a significantly different character to the Red Queen's War in that there is far more humor and that the main character, instead of being uh, highly fearless, is is an enormous coward. Uh, He has very different life goals from from Jork. And then you move on to my next trilogy. And that, again, is a step away from the Red Queen's War. So they're just like my natural instinct to to write lots of different chaotic stories in, in all over the map, just being restrained by commercial necessity and uh, the sensible desire not to do too many sudden U-turns and right-handed turns on the reader to just let them know that what they're going to get isn't going to be the same thing, but there are going to be many similar elements that, that will keep them happy.
0: And with the continued guidance of superstar agent Ian Drury, I'm sure that he will not lead you astray in your publishing quests. He's got great instincts. Absolutely. I think he was very spot on with the uh, second trilogy there and then continuing on to uh, the Book of the Ancestor. Did you have an initial goal when you set out to write the Red Queen's War? Was there anything specific that you wanted to do, like continue to talk about characters or just continue to explore the world? Or was there anything at the forefront when you when you set out to to write Jalen and and that story?
3: Uh, I don't think so, really. I think the Broken Empire the story is very um focused and intense and okay there's humor in it but basically it's pretty serious um that's you know that that's an element of me I I like writing it but but I it's not everything I <laughs> I also like having a laugh at, and I just want wanted to let rip it and make some of these things funny that there were many opportunities where in um, the broken empire you could do something silly but it would have slightly betrayed the feel and the aesthetic of the thing so to have jalan walking some of the same territory and and facing similar challenges but to react to them in very different ways and to to tie himself rather than be the consummate innovator um that jog is and meet all these new challenges with really or seemingly impossible challenges with with, um hopefully clever solutions that are are improvised on the spot jalan is more able to to turn a, a situation that should be easy to deal with into something very complicated.
0: Did you find the humor in this series, uh, is it something that you planned just to be, hey, I'm going to make this super funny, or did it just kind of develop uh, like your other stories as you wrote it?
3: I think if you try to be funny, then it it's sort of doomed to disaster. Um, like Philip? I, I, think I, yeah, like I, I just didn't stop myself <laughs> writing things that, that made me smile. But it was never. there's never any sort of jokes in there. There's never anything where if you don't laugh the book will collapse on you that's the that's when you take a step too far i feel that's when humor becomes unless you're like terry pratchett and can pull it off all the time it becomes very subjective and you just have to be a, a comic genius to keep all of the people happy or enough people happy um so my thing is never tell a joke always have the situation be interesting um in its own right so that if the person who's reading it has no sense of humor or it just doesn't tickle them at all that they'll still be interested because it's still a good story and it still matters and they still care about the characters but also there's the possibility that someone who shares my sense of humor will will see the comedy in it and, and you know burst out laughing on a bus somewhere yeah i'm uh i, I force a lot of my humor so i'm really good
4: <laughs> My students often, I, you know, I teach in Japan and I tell my students jokes all the time and and they just sit there and stare at me and then, <laughs> and then I always tell them, you know, I'm actually funny. You just don't realize how funny I am and and then they just
3: stare at me some more. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the um the the reason for dry humor is because it's, it's told by people. It's humor from people who are scared of of dying on stage, sort of thing. So if you if your humor is a, a very dry variety then if people don't laugh, you can pretend it was never supposed to be funny in the first place. Yeah, that's what I do on a daily basis. It sounds like you put your, put yourself out on the line a bit more. You're, you're taking more risks because... If you're actively telling a joke and someone doesn't laugh, then you got more opportunity to feel bad. Whereas if you just said something that they could have laughed at and then they don't, you just say, well, you know, it wasn't supposed to be funny. I wasn't making a joke. It was. uh... Ah.
4: Yeah, that's my life. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about the new series, Book of the Ancestor. Um, uh, One thing about uh, Red Sister when I first heard about it uh, was a lot of talk of ninja nuns. A lot of people were saying, this book has ninja nuns and that immediately piqued my interest but as a writer does sometimes people saying like oh that's the ninja nun book does that affect you in any way or are you happy like however people get hooked into the book or whatever marketing uh word of mouth uh works to get people to read the book uh
3: is that is that good for you no matter what it is or
1: yeah the,
3: the phraseology i've seen which is similar to yours but uh, um I've seen it quite a bit, is, is gay murder nuns, which uh, works for me. Yeah, any condensing of an entire book into two or three words is bound to have the potential to sound dismissive or to to overwrite great elements of nuance or, or whatever. So, yeah, you, you can never sensibly complain about a description that, that occupies three words because all it can ever do is, is capture some element of the thing. And, yeah, ninja nuns, gay murder nuns, that's... <laughs> Sounds fine to me, you know, it's it's a a good way of piquing someone's interest and then um, hopefully they'll find that there's a bit more to it when they when they read it.
4: Yeah, I think uh, Nona, Nona Gray is a really intriguing character because she's very, very young. And when she's uh, taken in and uh, trained to be an assassin, uh, how do you think uh, there's a lot of death that's kind of around Nona early on? How do you think that shapes her as a character as you go through the story without spoilers?
3: Well, I'm going to have to put in some small spoilers, but uh, I I think uh, one of the the key things about Nona is that actually she has a proclivity to violence and is far less affected by the deaths that she sees and causes, not the deaths of her friends, but the the deaths of of, um, other people around her. She's far less affected by these things than she feels she should be and and spends a lot of the time trying to hide that aspect of her character because she thinks uh, it sets her further apart from uh, a world that she already has problems interacting with. So friendship's a key element of of the story and Nona has difficulty making friends and when she does make friends then she becomes fantastically loyal to them. So she, she's always worried about things in her own character that might drive people up, that she wants as her friend away from her and her, her, her stabbiness, if you like, is um, <laughs> is one of those things that, that she uh, tries to disguise. But, uh, yeah, there are certain people who have different levels of inner violence to them and, and different reactions to to um, stressful situations. And I, I think she at heart is one of these people who is less affected by those things. and actually likes the adrenaline of or, or, or combat. I like how she's
4: um, like you said, she's very loyal and tries to make uh, friends, and like the way she she tries to make friends is kind of interesting. It's not like a typical way to make a friend. <laughs> it basically so, declares it. <laughs> yeah, you are my friend now. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's the one. So, yeah, I think she she's very, you can tell by, by what you're saying about Jorg and uh, Jalen and no, no, they're all very distinctive, different characters, and they don't feel uh, the same in any way. And you can tell that each story is focused on the char- they're very character-driven, which is not something that a lot of mainstream fantasy has. I think a lot of mainstream fantasy tends to be more plot-driven
3: or archetypal kind of characters. Yes, you'll get a lot of people, not a lot. A criticism I've seen of, of some of my books on occasion is um, people have said, uh, or I read this hundred pages and nothing happened or the the first half is is very slow. And the way I interpret that is that these are readers who are very keen on plot. And so, if something really interesting happens to their character, they don't consider that as something happening. And I think that that's just a a symptom. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just a a symptom of the genre that that uh, there is a focus on uh, on plot, and a lot of readers are sort of attuned to. The plot needs to be moving forwards, otherwise there's, there's no point to these pages. They're just um, wasting my time. But by no means would I say that, that there aren't lots of character-driven books as well in, in fantasy.
0: There are, there are tons,
3: you know. I'm certainly not
0: the the only person doing it by any means. It sounds like with each book and each series, you're continuing to evolve your writing style and in Red Sister, you actually switch from your usual first-person POV to a third person. What made you decide to do that?
3: Well, it, it's not like I've not done it before. The, I, Prince of Thorns was the third book that I, I wrote, the um, the two before the first one was was terrible and, and the second one was okay and is is on Wattpad if anyone wants to read it but they were both third person and the gun law book that i wrote in between prince of in between emperor thorns and prince of fools was also third person so yeah it's it's just happens that the, the first two trilogies i wrote were that got published were, were um in first person because there's only one point of view in Red Sister. The difference really is is because p- people often go to third person because they want to illuminate a large cast of characters. You know, like Game of Thrones, you, you have people dotted all over the map, and you need to, to move move around them. And third person is the, the way to go there. With Red Sister, it's it's a fairly subtle effect, really, because you could just get a, a computer to go through and change all of the uh, the language and turn it into first person. There wouldn't be a huge impact. Uh, what it allows you to do slightly, in my opinion, which may be wrong, is just pull the camera back a little bit from the character and become less claustrophobic inside their head. So in first person, you get a great immediacy and you live inside the, the character behind their eyes and you spend a lot of time with their thoughts. And in third person, and it's not necessary, but it just happens to be the way it, it seems to work, the way it lends itself. You pull back a bit and you spend less time in the person's head. And you get a slightly better view of what's going on around them, of the secondary characters. You know, people said in in um, Broken Empire that you really don't see much character-wise of Jorg's companions, and you know, it's true. It's partly because of him being very focused on his own goals and not caring about his companions that much. But it's it's also just um, that first person it can be a difficult way to 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 show a large cast. But as I even as I say that, I realise it, it's not. Not really true, because Robin Hobb writes brilliant secondary characters uh, from a first-person point of view.
0: And for folks who wanted to maybe get to know more of the characters from The Broken Empire, they can pick up Road Brothers, short story collection of 14 stories featuring uh, characters from The Broken Empire. If they wanted to pick that up, that's available now on Amazon. I wanted to uh, ask you, too, um, the story for Red Sister was actually inspired by a piece of artwork uh, that was sent to you by your editor. My editor sent me i
3: I'd, I'd written a piece on... Well, it's actually to do with this, this issue of gender of authors. I was saying, um, you know, if I was called um, instead of Mark, you just changed to Kate to Y and I had been Mary Lawrence, um, what sort of cover would the publishers have given me? Would they have given me a, um, a very different cover? Would they have tried to force me into to including romantic elements? and then what if I'd written, if the book had been Princess of Thorns rather than Prince of Thorns and my editor at Voyager, Jane Johnson, had seen this blog post and she sent me a piece of artwork that she felt would be a good thing to have had on the front of Princess of Thorns which was this um, woman drawing a sword with a uh, a very sort of a weird ambiguous expression on her face but you know that she's bad news and you really want to start running about now and that's actually going to be the cover of the You uk paperback version of red sister Oh, okay cool uh and going forwards the 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 artist who did that is going to um to do the hard covers for uh great sister and holy sister there was a lot of discussion inside voyager about the covers and and it resulted in this change and, and sadly also a one month delay in the uk release of um great sister while these covers are being cooked up but yeah so that expression on on, on the face of the uh, the character in that that piece of art encapsulated something that that I wanted to to have in though it certainly wasn't like all of her it's a, you know that the the aspect and importance of her friends for example is is not there but the don't fuck with me is um, and yeah time to be scared uh, you, maybe you won't get so much of that in in um, in Red Sister, but as she grows up through the series, I think we we see her sort of heading in that direction. What do you see when you look at my picture? a uh, fine, handsome man that uh, <laughs> would make any woman happy.
4: <laughs> no ambiguous weirdness or anything. <laughs>
0: I wouldn't like to comment on that. Uh, okay. So you've written all the books in the series for uh, the Book of the Ancestor? Yes, uh, finished them in August 2016. So that's Red Sister, Gray Sister, Holy Sister. We've got uh, Gray Sister going to drop in April, and then I presume Holy Sister will be the following April 2019.
3: Yeah. Okay. Oh well, it possibly, possibly like March or February. I think they're trying to concertina me in so they can get more books out. But but yeah, definitely 2019.
0: And so uh, did you want to break away from the Broken Empire universe with the Red Sister? Were you ready just to, to change things around? I, Ian didn't say, okay, more Broken Empire, or did he say, let's do something else?
3: No, I, I mean, Ian tends to, to advise after the fact, like, I, <laughs> I have a book, and then, then, he, then he reacted to, to it. Um, no, we don't really have direction conferences or anything like that. Um, okay. Yeah, It's just something I felt like doing. I, I certainly didn't want to spend the rest of my writing career, writing books in the Broken Empire. I wanted to have, um, yeah, I wanted to try new things. I wanted to, to mm-hmm. try writing um, a female main character. I wanted to try having a magic system as opposed to a, a, a sort of more mysterious, less well-defined one. I, I just wanted to... Um, I, I get bored easily. I want, want to try different things. Since i finished the Book of the Ancestor trilogy, I started a, a new thing for Voyager, but I've also written a a, a standard, well, not standard, but, but a thriller set in the, the real world with no magic whatsoever. Um, and a, a science fiction book uh, and started about four different other books.
0: As far as The Broken Empire goes, uh, is there any plans to return to that story universe? Well, I'm not a planner,
3: so there's no plans per se, but I, one of the books I just mentioned that I started was a um, further Adventures of Jalan. So no, he doesn't die in the trilogy unless this is his twin or clone or something. But yeah, um, I, I started writing some of that. So I think I've got about a third of a book of that. So... Um, one day I'll find time to finish it,
0: and then maybe there'll be a publisher who wants to put it out. We just got news, breaking news, do-do-do-do, uh, here a couple of days ago, I think. Uh, you got a new science fiction series dropping with, uh what is it, 47 North, the Amazon guys? That's right. Power Word Kill is the first book. Tell us a little bit about that, whatever sneak peek, whatever uh, insights you can give us to that one. Yeah, I
3: want to say less about it than it was in the um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the new press release, if, if you like. Uh, I mean, it's set in the 1980s in London. It uh, centers around a D&D group. So in marketing terms, those things give a, a slight nod to, um, to Stranger Things. And I, was, you know, I wrote it after watching the first series of Stranger Things. I mean, uh, there's clearly an element of influence there but it isn't it isn't just a, a knockoff of stranger things it's, it's very different when you get down to it and uh, there's science fiction in it but not the spaceships and ray guns type oh and has a sort of boy girl thing going on it too so uh, i guess you could call that romance uh, i don't really think of it in terms of, of that I, unfairly i very unfairly I, I i still have this thing that when people say romance i i see Bodices bursting and, and long flowing dresses and, and stately man house in the background. Uh, so yeah, yes. When you when you put a boy and a girl together and a relationship forms, then it's it's romance. But but um, I still don't really <laughs> think of myself as having written a romance. It's a it's a science fiction uh, adventure set in eighties London with uh, a D and D group, which is where the title comes from.
4: I don't know anything about uh, bodice ripping or anything, <laughs> but. I do know that Power Word Kill is a ninth level wizard spell, so that's that's my knowledge I have. And I've never had a wizard in a and d campaign get higher than 1st level, so magic, i was just shooting
3: magic missiles all the time. Because I always get killed. Yeah, magic missile are a fine spell. They're called magic users. You, you're only called a wizard if you get to 18th level or something? I don't know, uh, but yes, it's... Um uh, lots of nerdery are involved in it, and I just demonstrated some by um, <laughs> getting, getting um, h- hooked up on, on, the, on the terminology. So, no, but the, the, that's part of the fun of it. The, the, <laughs> the um, it, it attracts a certain type of person, D and D, and you, you have to um, different people get differently involved in the rules. But yeah, that's why it's um, got the fandom and the uh, and the following that, that people get really into it. When's that going to drop? I believe that's also going to be around about the first half or third of uh, 2019. And then the plan is that the second and third book will come out fairly shortly after that. So uh, it won't be one a year. It will be one every, I don't know, I'm guessing here, but like three or four months. Very cool. So
0: fantasy, sci-fi, plenty of good books coming out from Mr. Lawrence. So plenty to look forward to. And of course, folks can always drop by your blog at marklawrence.buzz is your... Blog that's, for everybody. That's that right? my website. Website. Um, my
3: my blog is on Blogspot, and it's I don't know. I'm sure anyone can Google it and find it. It's got a ridiculous number of dashes in between the names because <laughs> yeah. there was already a Mark Lawrence and there was already a Mark Dash Lawrence, and <laughs> wow. then I just got bored and hammered a whole bunch of dashes <laughs> in, so that I could be guaranteed of uh, getting the next name I asked for.
0: Thanks for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings podcast. Available online at thegrimtidingspodcast.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Grim Dark Fiction, and for daily updates on all things Grim Dark, be sure to drop by our Facebook group at Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time. Finding the right photos for digital art is way more difficult than it should be. Neostock was developed as your one-stop solution for the best in stock photography. Artists, authors, and publishers from around the world are using Neostock. Are you? Go to neo-stock.com today for your free digital sample pack. Tell your story with Neostock. If you love the authors you've heard on the Grim Tidings podcast, then you'll love Grim Dark Magazine. Interviews, articles, reviews, and the premier magazine for grimdark fiction by authors such as Mark Lawrence, R. Scott Baker, Deborah Wolf, and more. Get knee deep in grit. Log on to grimdarkmagazine.com.